Blog Talk Radio. I have a new name. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm happy to welcome the callers and chatters to Ancestors Footprints. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, a special welcome to the members of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. Tonight's show is about the 400 years of African-American history with Rick Murphy. A Boston native, Rick Murphy is an educator an award-winning author of several books and historical publications. Now, long before he started writing, Rick had always heard about his rich family background, which led him to begin as a hobby genealogical research. His family lineage dates to the earliest colonial periods of Plymouth, Massachusetts, and Jamestown, Virginia. Rick's lineage has been evaluated and accepted by several societies, including the Daughters of the American Revolution, the National Society of the Sons of Colonial New England, the Sons of the American Revolution, the Sons of the Union Veterans of the Civil War, and the Sons and Daughters of the U.S. Middle Passage. Rick is also the National Vice President for History for the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. So let me give a warm welcome to Rick Murphy. Welcome, Rick. Be on your show this evening Welcome. with you and your, your your guest. Well, I'm just so happy to have you, Rick, on the show tonight. So this year, 2019, it's, it's just a really important year in African-American history. So can you briefly share the importance of, of 2019? I'd be honored to do that. But before I do that, Bernice, I want to once again congratulate you and your co-authors on winning the International Ogs Book Awards for your book, Our Ancestors, Our Stories. 
And that really is what this evening will be about, about our ancestors and our stories. Um, the 400th year commemoration of the first documented Africans um, actually started on August 25th in 1619 when 20 or so um, um, Africans from um, Angola came to English North America in a very unusual way. And this commemoration celebrates them and all of the other um, Africans who came as part of the United States Middle Passage and their contributions throughout the past 400 years of our U.S. history. So before we go forward, you know, I noticed you said the first documented Africans. Uh, yes. You know, I've heard that there were others that came before this group. So tell us what that means. And it's a, it's a very clear distinction. Uh, there is no question that Africans came to North and South America before these first Africans came in 1619. Um, they were Africans that were part of the Christopher Columbus expedition on his four or five voyages. Um, there were Africans that went to um, Florida um, in the mid-1500s. And there's even documentation that Africans were in South America, what we now know today as South America, um, going back 500 to 1,000 years, even before the first documented Africans. The distinction about these particular Africans and what makes them unique is all of the documentation that took place around them and the rich history and lineage that they, legacy that they left uh, behind them from the 1619s. So there's documentation over in um, Portugal, there's documentation in Spain, there's documentation in Angola. There's documentation in um, uh, what at the time was called New Spain, what is today present-day Mexico. Um, there's also documentation in England, and there's tremendous documentation in Virginia. So what makes these Africans, or one of the many reasons that makes them unique with all of the documentation that surrounds them, which allows us to go back and, and, and see who they were, uh, where they lived, and how many of us are descended from them. So that's what makes a distinction. So they were not the first in North or South America, but they are the first who came in English North America in 1619. So when you talk about documentation, exactly what are you referring to? Well, as I mentioned, um, the documentation on these particular Africans reside in a number of different places. Um, we've got the colonial records in Virginia. Um, and those records, which are, are really complex documents, um, but they're, for example, the original list of persons of quality written by John Camden um, in the uh, mid-1800s. Um, you've got the documentations from the Virginia Company in London, um, which was written by Susan Kingsbury. Many of these documents actually took the original documents that were done at the time um, and they codified them in volumes. Um, we've got the legislative journals of the Council of Colonial Virginia. We've got the documentations of the Cavaliers and the, and the Pioneers, which are the abstracts of the Virginia land patents. And the reason why those are important, because many of these Africans or Angolans originally started out as headwrights um, and were placed on different plantations. And we can see how they went through the headwright system and actually became landowners themselves. So through these colonial documents, we can see how they bought their land, how many of them leased land, how, how they became cattlemen and sold their cattle to other enslaved people, even to Europeans. 
So these colonial records are very, very rich. Um, and I'm, I'm surprised that there hasn't been as much research on these colonial documents as, as one would think. Um, but in American history, we're led to believe who these people were, and that false narrative is not an accurate one. And when you begin to go through these colonial documents, you begin to realize how rich these people, their lives were. And you're right. I mean, I I can remember going through school and really never hearing about these documents. What well, was going know, on? The, I mean, so many people, I guess, may be saying the same thing. Yeah, and unfortunately, Bernice, a lot of us are. And, and what's funny for me, um, I was very fortunate to grow up in a very rich family who believed very strongly in oral history. And, and I grew up in the Boston area, as you said, and so much of, of Boston history talks about the Revolutionary War. And what I read in the, in the history books is not what I was hearing at home, particularly from my grandparents. Um, and from a very young age, I knew I had uh, African ancestors who fought in the American Revolution. And when I would tell classmates in school, I primarily went to white schools, and I told my classroom teachers, they didn't believe it. So this was history that I had known all along. So when I began to do my research, I was really surprised and amazed and shocked um, as I went through these colonial documentation to find the rich history that just jumped off the pages that had the names of my ancestors. And you are so fortunate to have had, number one, the oral history in your family, and then to, to go and find these documents. And so with these documents, you mentioned several lineage societies this is what you use to get into those various lineage societies. That's correct. The lineage societies, <clears throat> you have to provide legal documents that proves generation to generation. So, you know, obviously it's, it's very easy for each of us to provide legal documentation to our parents. That would be birth certificates or marriage certificates to grandparents and great-grandparents. But when you get to go back to the 1980s, it makes it much more difficult to do that. It was very easy for me in Massachusetts um, because Massachusetts collect, collected all of those records going back to the middle 1600s. So when I had to prove my lineage, I was able to go directly to Massachusetts and find every birth, death, and marriage certificate going back to the ancestors of the 1700s to prove that I had an ancestor that fought in the Revolutionary War. My father's people and my mother's mother's people uh, came from the South. Um, so when I went down South, I expected to find the same types of records, and I didn't and I couldn't. Um, so like so many of us, when we try to do our genealogical research in the South, we look for those traditional records that we're most familiar with today. Fortunately, someone told me not to look for birth, death, and marriage look for land deeds, look for land patents, look for any type, type of document that exists around land. It might be a will. Um, and when I started to do that, then I began to find those ancestors in the South as well because many of our ancestors in the wills, they left almost a, a, a complete genealogical family tree because they gave different parts of land or animals or other uh, valuables to their descendants and they named them as to how they were related to them. 
And I was most fortunate that as I went to the South, um, particularly in Virginia and North Carolina, I was able to do that. And that's when I became aware of all of these colonial records that I make reference to. Oh, quite interesting. Well, tell us, I mean, I know you are part of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society. Uh, Can you tell me what your involvement is with them, and then what role are you playing in in really pushing information out about the 400 commemoration of African-American history? Well, it's truly an honor to be uh, a member of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, first of all. A person who is interested in genealogy um, and a person who is interested in history, um, I'm in heaven's dream because both of my passions are all in one organization. The members of of OGS, as as we call ourselves, um, it's a very tight-knit family where we all have the same interest, and that is finding out about our ancestors, it's interesting when we have our annual conference, how many people are finding out that they're related to one another. Um, it really is a very family-friendly, oriented organization, and I have the deep honor of being the vice president of history. So I'm able to take my passion of history and helping to shape um, national uh, policies around African-American history and also working with my fellow members within ARCs. We started about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, commemorating the 400th commemoration um, of the first documented Africans. And we have the 400th commemoration commission. Um, And we're most fortunate that we have scholars and historians and subject matter experts from all around the country who serve um, as commissioners. And our primary objective is to look at every single aspect of African-American history African-American genealogy and the lives of African-Americans in communities across the country to make sure that we're pushing out this information, but that we begin to change how we're all taught in school. Because again, um, I learned one thing at home about African-American history and learned something very different to school as most of us did. So, so I, I feel most fortunate to have the opportunity to be able to do that and I know many of the listeners on the phone who are, who are members of, of OGS will tell you how the organizations actually enrich each of our lives um, as we try to go down this journey. Yes, it, it certainly does provide us with a rich opportunity to to learn from each other. But I want to know what are the chapters um, doing as they commemorate the 2019, the importance of of this whole issue of 400 years of African-American history? We are a chapter-based organization, and we're most fortunate to have chapters all over the country. So there's no one specific answer to that, Denise, because each chapter is in a different type of community. I think the the common thread with all of them is they're trying to push out uh, programming to their respective communities to enlighten folks within those respective communities of the importance of the 400 commemoration and honoring African-American contributions, whether it's in the field of education, the field of of, of military service, the field of, of, of music or art, 
we're working with public school children. We're working with, with library programs. So we're doing an awful lot. So each chapter is, is, is handling this differently based on the needs of those communities. Um, our chapter presidents are really pushing out within their communities to look at all aspects of African-American life presently and in the past. They're looking at African-American cemeteries um, to make sure that they're being maintained the way that they should be. They're looking at historical institutions within our communities. They're looking at old schoolhouses that have gone into disrepair and looking at ways of raising funds to, to preserve those facilities. Um, so, so each chapter, based on the community that they're in, is, is tackling this challenge very differently. Um, but our chapter president and our chapter members are doing a phenomenal job to make sure that the next 400 years, in terms of our understanding of our history, is very different than the past 400 years. And so, first of all, it is wonderful to hear that each of the chapters, of course, they're unique in their community, but they are doing something. How are we or how are you then encouraging not just the African-American community to commemorate the 400 years, but what about the, the larger community, the American community? What are they doing and what role are the chapters playing to make that happen? Well, one of the things I think in my own research, what I have found very interesting is I have always worn um, um, my blackness proudly, and I've always considered myself an African-American. But I think through this uh, historical journey, I now refer to myself as an American of African descent. And there are a lot of Americans of African descent who, who may not look like me, uh, may look more European, but we're beginning to find more and more uh, Americans who are, are beginning to realize through all these DNA programs um, that they have African ancestry in them. Um, and we are designing programs around the country for example, one of our commissioners, Gigi uh, Beth Richardson, um, heads up our um, history um, society department. So she's working with historical societies, which are primarily uh, European-based organizations around the country, to make sure that they are also being inclusive of addressing the issues of African-American history. Um, ODDS is also in partnership with the Federated uh, Genealogical Society, um, making sure that at their conference and other conferences, um, we're beginning to introduce um, African-American history. So what we're beginning to find out that this is not just African-American history, but our history is American history because it started from the very beginning, whether it was in um, the Massachusetts Bay Area, um, in Plymouth and Boston, or whether or not it was in the Jamestown Point Comfort Area in Virginia. Um, American history started there and we were right there from the very beginning of that American history. So we are reaching out to all communities across the country to make sure that they're integrating um, this knowledge and this history into their curriculum, into their program, um, into everything that goes on within those communities, particularly their schools. And is this a year-long type commemoration, or is it a one month, or just tell us more? Um, I am asked oftentimes to speak during the month of February, and I, and I always say Happy Black History Month. Um, and this year I'm going to go out and say Happy Black History Year 
there are events going on all around the country the entire year. Um, for example, uh, Calvin Pearson, who is the executive director of Project 1619 down in Hampton, Virginia, they're holding a, a, a number of historic events in August around the August 25th time period when the first documented Africans came here. Um, and, and Calvin has host along with the city of Hampton, um, the state of Virginia, um, are hosting a number of events that will also include um, black dignitaries coming from Africa, um, uh, African presidents and vice presidents representing their nations. There's an awful lot going on around the country. So this is not just a one-month or a one-week event. There are activities going on all around the country. I know Boston University is having a big program in November of this coming year. A number of the other uh, uh, historically black colleges are having events throughout the year. So this is a year-long event. So it's not just going to be taking place in February of this year. It's going to be taking place um, the remainder of the year. And we hope to push these activities out um, um, beyond 2019, um, but also 2020, um, as a number of these cities begin to host um, their own 400 commemorations. So I think this is going to be a project that's going to be much longer than just 2019. Right. And I want you for a minute to go back and tell us what was it like when the first Africans arrived in 1619, what was the colony of Virginia like, and, and who were the, the slaves? Wow. Bernice, you asked a whopper of a question, um, and I guess i got to kind of <laughs> deal with it in two perspectives. Um, okay. When Virginia was started in, in, in 1607, um, and it's a hard concept for us to, to grasp, um, it was a colony that was actually owned by a company called the Virginia Company of London. So those of us that grew up in company towns, we know what company towns are all about. The company owns everything. It owns the land. It owns the, the, the houses. It owns the cattle. Uh, it owns the, the produce or the crops that are grown. It also owns the people. So everyone in the colony in 1607 was owned by the Virginia Company and its investors. When the Virginia Company started, um, it pulled from the poorest parts of England um, white laborers to come to America and develop this colony. So many of the colonists who were here prior to 1619 were not the cavaliers that we, we read about in our uh, history books. These were poor men, um, about 85 to 90 percent of the people who were here were men. Um, they were uneducated. Um, many of them could not read. They could not write. They could not compute. Um, these were the gentlemen who uh, we often hear of, uh, particularly in Europe, as part of the peasant class. So it was a very unique type of, of environment um, when the Africans came here. Now, the Africans themselves were unique as well. They came from a very rich urban area um, of Angola. The city was called Kabasa. It was a highly developed city. It was a city that was um, um, developed in terms of culture, in terms of religion. They were Catholic, uh, supported by an actual Catholic bishop appointed by the Pope. Um, many in the city spoke multiple languages. So it's not the type of Africans that we learned about 
And how do we know that they were so developed is because the Portuguese who went there wrote an awful lot about these uh, Angolans. The Portuguese took the, the sons of the um, merchant class and the noble class, and they actually sent them to Europe to be educated. Those educated Angolans went back, and then they sent more uh, young men over to Europe. So when the Angolans who lived in Kabasa, um, they were unfortunate that they lived on top of a silver mine. And in 1618, when the Portuguese discovered that, it was their intent to remove the wealthiest, the most educated of these uh, Angolans, and they enslaved them, and the intent was to send them to, as I mentioned earlier, New Spain, which is present-day Mexico. So the Angolans that were on these ships um, were very different than the types of, of individuals who were here in the colony. Now, it's a long converted, convoluted story as to how they physically came here, um, and they came here through piracy. But when those Angolans came here, and some dispute whether they were enslaved or whether they were not treated as slaves, um, I have been conducting research for the past 30 years, and my research tells me that they were not enslaved um, because they were part of maritime contraband as a result of being kidnapped from the ship that they were on. So when they came here, uh, contrary to what many of us have read in the books, they were not slaves, and they could not have been slaves if they eventually wound up owning their own land, owning their own cattle. They had their own um, indentured servants, some of whom were white. Um, and so these are things that none of us learned about, none of us were taught about, but again, you find them in the colonial records. Well, now that's very interesting. And so in the colonial records now, you're talking about, you're really presenting us with the truth rather than this false narrative. So in the colonial records, tell us, were there names? And who can you even give us some names? Well, it's interesting. Um, I was unaware that there were two other people who independently were also conducting research. Um, I mentioned Calvin Pearson from Project 1619. Um, There's a Catherine Knight um, who was conducting research and myself. Um, And it's most interesting that the three of us um, have come up with common names of who many of these um, um, historic men and women were. in the book that I'm writing, that I'm, I'm finishing up right now, um, I've identified uh, 20 of the names of the original applicants. Now, many of the applicants who came here, there's only one applicant who came here who was identified with a first and last name. His name was Juan Pedro. Um, some of the Africans were meant, I shouldn't say Africans, Angolans. Some of the Angolans who came here, they were only mentioned by first names, and the most of them were unnamed individuals. But as you begin to go through the colonial records, you begin to realize who these individuals were, and they did have names. Um, And and their names are are interesting because they have names of people who we know who are in our families today. Now, for example, I'm descended from John Goet um, and Margaret Cornish. So those are two names um, that's been discovered as two of the original Angolans. Um, I've got a cousin by the name of Douglas uh, Cornwall 
who's descended from Anthony Johnson and his wife, Mary Johnson. Um, um, I mentioned Juan Pedro. Um, I'm trying to pull up on my, my sheet so I get all these names correct. Um, but, yes, we, we have begun to, to identify who a number of these Africans are, um, and I think over the next six to eight months, um, there will be a number of books that will be published that will have these names and the documentation to identify who they were. In addition to that, to these 20 um, um, Angolans who came in, in, in the 16-19 time period, um, um, eight years later, there was another ship with 100 um, Africans that also came from Angola. Um, and many of their names in the colonial records begin to surface as well. And you begin to see them um, begin to use their African names. Now, when we think of African names, um, um, these names in, in Angola were Portuguese derivative names because, again, Portugal colonized the area. The king made everyone Catholic in 1493. So you begin to hear these rich names of Juan, Emmanuel, um, Isabella, Maria. So those are all Spanish, Portuguese types names, and those were the names that these Africans had. Now, many of them, to become um, um, free from their indentures, um, had to become Protestants, and that's when they began to Protestantize or, or Anglicanize their names. So they, so Juan became John, um, 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 Margarita became Mary. So you begin to hear how they changed their names as they, they converted to the Protestant religion which was required in the Protestant colony. But, yes, we do know their names. Wow, this is, this is so, so interesting. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come back. But I do want to uh, give you a, just a comment that was made in the chat room, of which I'm trying to find it now, uh, that Hampton Road celebrates every year um, uh, and commemorate uh, the the. 20-odd Africans. That's so right. this is a commemoration yeah. that they do, and they, they just wanted you to um, make sure you mentioned that this is not uh, only 2019, but it's every single year. And, of course, they said this year is an even bigger deal than it has ever That's been correct. before. So Thank we're going to question. take just a real quick break and come right back, okay? Welcome back to Ancestors Footprints. 
This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. You have been listening to Rick Murphy discussing 400 years of African-American history. So, Rick... Genealogy and tracing one's family is, we know, a a challenging endeavor. And so why don't you tell us, I mean, you said you have identified your family members and colonial colonial Africans, but tell us more. How did you get started beyond your oral history? Well, first, Bernice, um, um, I appreciate your commercial break. I assume the audience heard commercials. I heard some phenomenal music, so I was grooving in the background to the tunes. Um, I, um, <laughs> the way I get involved in this is, is very interesting, and, and I go out around the country, and I'm, I'm oftentimes invited to uh, to speak. And my first book that came out, Freedom Road, uh, the American Family Saga from Jamestown to World War, um, um, I didn't divulge everything in the book. But one of the things that got me involved in genealogical research is our family got caught up in a family dispute on Martha's Vineyard. Um, and there's a, there's a neck of land uh, on Martha's Vineyard that perhaps is one of the prettiest parts of the entire island. And as the family became embroiled in the land, we had to provide documentation of family relationships. And I was in college at the time, and I took a course called uh, African-American Family History. And the professor said that if the three best papers will get an A, make a long story short, I got the A. Um, and, and part of that, my grandfather was so proud, he wanted to turn it into a, a little pamphlet for the family so I did a little additional research, and I actually found all of the, as I mentioned previously, the legal documents of the birth, death, and marriage. Now, part of that land dispute is um, we had to, what they referred to at the time, certify our family pedigree. And um, my father raised German Shepherds, so we, were, we all knew about pedigrees and the American Kennel Association, so I was taken a little bit aback, but I clearly understood what the concept was. Um, and um, as a result of that, we had to prove back to the Revolutionary War period. And again, um, Caesar Russell, who was my first patriot ancestor who fought uh, in the Revolutionary War, in fact, in fact he was part of George Washington's um, um, military attache. Um, he was a servant to Baron von Steuben. And those of you historians, uh, military men, um, Steuben was the one that came up with the first articles. I think they referred it to as the Blue Book, was the procedures for the military during the Revolutionary War. Um, so that actually is what got me started in this. Um, the family was, was most pleased that um, at the time I was a school teacher, so I had afternoons off. I had, week, uh, um, I had long vacations off, 
So I could do the kind of research within a four or five month period, um, whereas other family members were not. So that's how I got started in that, and that's really kind of a, a thumbnail of how I began all of this. Um, when I relocated to the Washington, D.C. area, um, I began to do more research towards um, those ancestors who were in the South. And one of the things that I often say, and, and those who are on the, on the call who are not genealogists will think weird of this, but those on the call who, who are genealogists um, will understand when I say that my family ghost spoke to me. And I would go into libraries, I would go into to county courthouses, I would go into different locations around the country, and for some strange reason, I would know what drawer to pull out, what book to take off the shelf, and all of a sudden, my ancestors spoke to me, um, and they guided me in my journey to find things that I would never think of finding. Um, and in 1742, um, my Howell ancestors um, bought Lynn in Granville, North Carolina, um, I think they bought, I think it was a thousand acres for two pence. Um, I would I would not have known to open up that drawer, but I found the deed, and not only did I find the deed, the deed was signed by Lord Granville himself, the man who which the county was named after. So I had many many experiences like that, and and I would like to say that I was lucky. Um, it really wasn't luck. It was some divine force that sent me to do certain things. And when I talk to genealogists, I can't tell you how many others will say the same. Our ancestors wanted to be found, um, and that's how I found many of them. Well, you know, Rick, you are so right. I mean, the ancestors are just there whispering when you're asleep, and you wake up the next morning and you realize, wait a minute, why don't I look there? And so it's just wonderful to hear you say that. Now, you have someone saying they didn't know you had connections to Granville County. But, Rick, uh, we have a caller on the line, so let's see what this okay. caller has to say. Uh, area code 832, do you have a comment or a question? Yes, this is um, Ted Ellis, uh, one of the commissioners for the um, 400 um Commission um, commemorating um, African-American um, history and culture from 1619 to 2019. And um, I want to say, Mr. Murphy, um, I'm, I'm, I'm truly inspired and, and motivated to do everything I can to bring about the awareness and the importance of our ancestors and how important our genealogy is and, and um, connecting and telling our story. Um, we have the um the task of um not only raising the funds but um um assisting in the programming and planning of organizations and institutions that have committed themselves not just for this year but for the entirety of commemorating and recognizing our importance you know from from the english rule the british rule of sixteen nineteen you know I was thinking about fifteen twenty eight and um Galveston, Texas, when we had yep. the Van Nico, the, the more um, you know, capsized with the uh, with the Spanish um, ship here, and you know we had presence prior to that. You know, I, I think about the um, you know when it was just one continent in Pangaea. We've always been seafarers and navigators and um, and travelers um, um, throughout this globe. So, 
you know, having presence here, having presence um, um, pre sixteen nineteen. Yes, we we it, we we've been here and have been. Um, the what makes this so important is is you know it's when America became colonized by the British. You know, by their rule, by their letter of the law. You know, we became um, contraband and chattel, and um, and then debased as human beings. And you know, we want to tell our story. 1619 and, and beyond the arc of 1619, we want us to have a have our community have an honest narrative. And the way that happens is that you have to have a platform. You have to have a means of making that happen. Um, Tim came and a few other um, politicians, um, senators, and congressmen got together and ushered a bill, you know, to have $6 million to help assist organizations throughout the 50 contiguous states. The bill was passed into law. Um, it was stripped of the funding, and we have really no means of of financially supporting any of the organizations throughout our community. It's a mounting task. Um, when we met in Virginia, they um, asked us to start raising funds, and I said, that's not the federal mandate, but it is what it is. And so, um, you know, we're, we're doing the best that we can in partnering with, with organizations um, like Asala and um, and institutions that are, have already had their boots on the ground running for for more than um, you know three to five years, and and getting their program to have a national voice through uh, through our commission. So that's where we are right now. You know, I, I appreciate the effort and the um, commitment that you have placed on it. Um, Calvin Pearson has been at this for more than twenty something years. He was not um, put on the commission, and I and I still um, and. and I mean, in all of that, and I and I question uh, why he wasn't, but uh, we still got to push this forward. And um, so, with with that says, you know, I'm I'm I am an, a person of service. Whatever I can do to help the organization and your platform to get the visibility that it needs um, nationally, you know, you mentioned, you know, what about the um, the next 400 years, and uh, and that's critical. So, you know, out of this commission, you know, we should come away with a strategic plan that will be beneficial to our community moving forward and, and seeing the relevance and the importance of, of our existence and our uh, contributions. So that's that's all I wanted to say. Well, you know, Mr. Ellis, I, I'm honored that you're, you're on the line. You originally said you were part of the 400th Commission. Um, I know there um, almost every state has a 400th Commission. I know a number of the municipalities. But when you mentioned Senator Tim Kaine, I realized that you're part of the 400th Presidential Commission so you're one of the hot shots. So, so we're most honored that you're on the call with us uh, this evening to share that. Um, and we look forward to working with you any way that we can. I think one of your, your fellow members, um, I think I'm on, uh, uh, on the schedule to meet with her either this Monday or Tuesday. Um, so we appreciate the commission reaching out to us. Um, we look forward to working with you. Um, I agree with you with respect to Mr. Calvin Pearson. Um, uh, it's an honor to know him. Um, I can't believe that he's been waging this battle for 20 years. Um, he's had to correct a number of false narratives. Um, he's taken a lot of, of hits um, over those yes, 20 years. And, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad that we're all coming forward to begin to address the false narratives because this is our history and it's most important that we begin to take control of our history and that we don't allow others to define it for us. And what's most important, um, um, I am most fortunate that many of my ancestors were, but many of my ancestors were also enslaved. 
So this is a rich history of tapestry that we each have, but we should not allow others to define what our history is because I'm most proud of my free ancestors for what they had to persevere through, and I'm most proud of my enslaved ancestors for what they also had to persevere through. But when people tell us what our history is and they refuse to look at the documentation, they can have their opinion, but they can't have their facts. It is now important that we take control of our facts to make sure that our own children understand our rich history. And I think that will begin to change how we look at ourselves within this nation that we help create and that we help preserve. So thank you, Ms. Alice. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Ted. And for others, I uh, have opened up the phone line so that if you have comments or questions, please feel free to call 646-200-0491 and press 1. Now, I want to go back to a little history with you, Rick. Now, where exactly did the 20 captives become slaves? Was it in Jamestown or somewhere else? When they were captured in Kabasa, Angola, they were to be enslaved. The Portuguese realized that the only way they could take control of the city was to get the noblemen, the wealthy, and the educated away from the land. There were 36 ships that brought the soldiers to Angola, and those same 36 ships were used to take the human cargo who were captive, uh, kidnapped and captive from Kabasa. They sent them to North America. Primarily, the goal was to send them to Brazil and uh, New Spain, which again was um, present-day Mexico. One of the ships, everyone in the ship became very, very violently sick. 100 of them died weeks into the voyage. The ship stopped in Jamaica. It was washed down. The, the, the enslaved captives were um, fed. Um, and when it was believed that they were healthy enough, that ship sailed off to New Spain. So it was no longer part of the larger flotilla. Approximately 500 miles in the Bay of Comanche, off the coast of New Spain, there were two English pirate ships who spotted this Spanish slaver. They believed the Spanish slaver had gold and silver on it. A two-hour battle pursued, and when the two English pirate ships boarded the Spanish ship, the Spanish slaver, they realized that there was no gold or silver on that ship, but the, the remainder of the enslaved Angolans. Each ship took approximately... 30 Angolans, 60 in total, and with the intent of selling them to uh, uh, either uh, the colony of Virginia or the colony that was in Bermuda. Now, there's a very key thing here. Uh, It was against the law to steal from a ship of a nation with whom you were not at war with. One of the English ships had a marquee or a letter document that said that they had a right to attack Spanish slave Spanish ships 
The other had an expired letter or marquee. So the ship that had the expired letter, it was illegal for them to touch that Spanish ship or engage it in battle. At that moment, there was no legal way that any Englishman, no matter where they were, had the right to anything on that ship, whether it was gold, silver, horses, cattle, or people. So when those in, um, um, enslaved Africans who left Angola with intent to go to uh, New Spain, they clearly were intended to be enslaved. But that chain of cycle was broken the moment that pirate ship attacked the Spanish slaver. When those uh, Angolans came to uh, um, Virginia, there was no formal law in place that addressed the issue of slavery. And no one has come up with a law. Despite the false narrative, there is no document. Now, they talk about what took place in, 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 in uh, Bermuda, but Bermuda was a separate colony, just like Massachusetts was a separate colony. And then, quite frankly, during that period of time, they were treated as separate countries. So the colony or country of Virginia, there was no formal system of enslavement. And no one can come up with a document that says otherwise. Now, the way we look at slavery, we tend to think of slavery during the antebellum period. Uh, and slavery is just like skin color. It goes from generation to generation. You can't rub off your skin color just like you can't rub off slavery. These men and women became independent men and women. They owned land. They owned cattle. They even owned indentures for, for white indentures that they themselves brought from England. So they, they were not all slaves. Um, and, and I look forward to challenging anybody in a conversation that says otherwise because the documentation and, all, and, and, and what they need to do is read the documentation before they engage me in this conversation um, because documentation doesn't lie. Um, so we were led to believe that they were all enslaved um, and that they remained enslaved, and that was not the case. Now, the laws evolved, and with the involvement of the laws, and as more and more Africans came to English North America, it, there is no doubt and there is no question that when the laws changed, particularly from 1660 um, and certainty after 1705, that when Africans came here, they were enslaved. But these first arrivals were not enslaved. And, and unlike skin color, you can't turn skin color to a different color, and you can't become a non-slave if you were a slave. Please.
this is Hello, Rick. Okay, I lost you, and that's why the music started playing. So we are just loaded with people ready to ask questions. So I'm going to start bringing people on, and when I bring you on, I'm going to call out your area code. So area code 480, you're live. Hi, Bernice. This is Phyllis Grimes, Arizona. Todd's telling our story. How are you? Hi there. Well, do you have a question or a comment? Yes, I do. I am calling from Phoenix, Arizona, and I have a question for the speaker today, Mr. Rick Murphy. I am the president, newly president of the Black Family Genealogy History Society here in Phoenix, Arizona. We're not affiliated with UGS, so my question is, how do we go about getting more information, finding out who in Arizona is already working with the 400 years, just how do we, as a newly, you know, a new person that just found out about the information, real reason, how do I go about connecting and finding out who's involved here in Arizona? Okay, so excellent, excellent question. And I was a little concerned when I get dropped because I started to get fired up and I was afraid that the sponsors <laughs> dropped me off the line. But I'm glad that wasn't the case. But Phyllis, you asked a very good question. First of all, if you email me at VP History, so that's V is in Victor, P is in Paul, History at odds, A A H G S dot org, and I will make sure that I get you in contact with, with Nathaniel Branch Miles, who um, is the person who um, you would get in contact with, and she'll provide you with all the information as to how you can become affiliated with with, with the organization. And you and I can talk offline once I get your email address as to what we can do to help you good folks down here in the, in the Phoenix area. Okay, and I'm a member of OGS. just wanted to let you know I am a member of OGS, a personal okay, member, good. not our society. But we have been talking about being affiliated, too. Perfect. Perfect. So you know how to okay, get and I will send you the information. Okay, thank you thank so you. much. You're welcome. Okay, thank you so much for calling in. So we have another You're caller welcome. that's calling in right now. And that's area code 904. You're live. Do you have a question or a comment? Yes, this is Reuben Keith Green in Jacksonville, Florida. I want to commend Rick for his book on Admiral Larry Chambers, who was one of the first uh, African-American <clears throat> African American, uh, flag officers in the Navy. Rick wrote an excellent uh, biography of him. I've read it. It's a, it's a neglected area in our history. We have a lot of military history in the African-American community, particularly uh, in the, uh, the 20th century. And I just want to commend Rick for writing that book. Mr. Green, thank you very much for that and, and for calling in. And I'm also familiar with your work as well. And, and as a former Navy man, um, you went through so many challenges like many of our, our African-American um, men did in the past and, and, and women today. Um, so you also wrote a very important piece of work. So I appreciate your calling in. Thank you, Mr. Green. Thank you. 